So do you and I ever have time in our life when we grow a little lukewarm or we lose our first love? Sure we do. That's why in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when John wrote to believers in the first part of Revelation, he wrote to seven churches. Five of those seven churches, he told them, there are some things you're doing wrong that you need to fix. In two of those letters, the first one, the word, the one to Ephesus, and the last one, ironically, the one to Laodicea, he said to the church at Ephesus, you lost your first love. You're doing all the right things. You're going through the religious motions, but you've got a problem. There's no passion. There's no love. There's no drive behind what you're doing. You're doing it because you think that performing these religious acts is somehow going to earn favor with God. It doesn't. You've lost your first love. You've lost that love and that passion that you need to have in order to be effective as a believer. What is the first love? Well, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, what was the greatest commandment, he said, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. That is the first love. That's the greatest love, that we fall in love with him. Then he said to the church at Laodicea, you're lukewarm. Basically, you're complacent. You can give it or, or leave it. Christianity is great when I got time for it. Living for God and doing what God says is great when it fits in my schedule. And you know what he said? He said, I would rather you are hot or cold. I would rather you just said, I don't like God, don't want nothing to do with God. God, leave me alone. I'd rather you do that than to kind of sit on the fence and just be, I don't care. Of course, the other side is, I think you'd much rather us be hot and fervent for the Lord than on the cold side. But God literally said, nothing is worse than sitting and straddling the fence. I mean, get on one side or another. And, and in modern day terminology, what God might be saying is, have a little bit of backbone. Have some guts. I mean, if, if you don't like me, then just stand up and say you don't like me. But don't act like you do when you really don't. So, Revival and this renewing of spiritual fervency is a normal part of life. Now, there are several times in the Bible when this actually happened. One of them is in Nehemiah chapter 8. So look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse number 1. The Bible says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, let me give you just real quick some background. The children of Israel have been 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Thirteen years prior to this, to Nehemiah going back to Jerusalem, Ezra led a group of Israelites out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to basically do two things. Number one, to rebuild their personal residences, their homes. Number two, to rebuild the temple. Because the first two things that had to be established, first of all, was a place to worship God there. And then second of all, there had to be a place for them to live. And they had to take care of themselves. So Ezra leads this group back in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And he goes back and they build the temple and they get all their homes built. Thirteen years later, Nehemiah is in the palace, still in Babylon, where he had been serving as a cupbearer. And he hears some Jewish people talking. He goes over and he says, how's everybody doing back home? 
And they said, well, basically everything's sort of okay. I mean, the temple's rebuilt and the homes are rebuilt, but the walls of the city are still broken down. Well, why were the walls of the city so important? Because that's what protects us from our enemies. Well, why did they end up in Babylon in the first place? Other than the fact that God determined they needed to go there to be punished. Because their enemies invaded their city and took them away captive. They needed that protection. And they feared because that protection was not there. Nehemiah became burdened. He began to pray. Four months after he started praying, God opened the door for him to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild these walls. Now, when you come to Nehemiah chapter 8, he's already gone back. He's rebuilt the walls, and they're beginning to dedicate the walls of the city and the city proper totally to God. This is a huge accomplishment. The city of Jerusalem is now completely back intact. Their homes have been rebuilt. Their temples have been rebuilt. Their walls have been rebuilt. It's back and better than ever. Since it was prior to the, the attack and the captivity. But there's still something missing. So you come to Nehemiah chapter 8. And the Bible says in verse 1 that after the people had settled in their towns, they all came together as one man in the square. And what did they ask for? Amazing. Ezra, who, by the way, was the priest, what did they tell him to do? Go get the Bible, because we want to hear it. Here's the key to revival. Here's how you know you need it. Here's how you know a country needs it. When the Bible is no longer important, then believers need revival. That's the key, period. That's it. Why does America need revival? What, what did, what did um, Solomon say in Second Chronicles when he prayed? Lord, if we stop doing what you have told us to do and we sin, and then we come back and we confess our sin, will you forgive us and restore back the land into the place of joy that we had it before we started sinning? And what did God say? Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people, which are called by my name, Believers, not unbelievers, not Canaanites, not the Amorites. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Seek my face. Find out what it is I've told you to do. Turn from your wicked ways. Stop doing those things that are in contrast to what I've told you to do. If you will seek my face, turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sin, and I will heal your land. That is revival. That's what that is. Now, what does the Bible tell us about a nation that forgets God? Basically, we're in trouble. I will tell you that the United States of America is a highly religious nation that has forgotten God. The Bible in the United States of America as a whole is no longer important. We've taken it out of our public places, we've taken it out of our educational system, and we're we've taken it out of the marketplace where we work, and we're slowly starting to take it out of our churches. 
When you go to church and you are in a place where worship is to take place, it's interesting to notice how much of the Bible is actually used in worship. The singing is great, and we need that. And they did that. But do you know why they sang? They sang in response, joy, to what they heard in the Bible. Satan is not threatened by religion. He's not threatened by passion. He's not threatened by anything other than the Bible. He's threatened by the Bible. This is the sword of the Spirit. Take the sword out of the Spirit's hand. He has no weapon. He has no way to fight. Try fighting in Afghanistan without a weapon. Just excitement and passion. Try singing the Taliban to death. Probably wouldn't work. You need a few sharpshooters and some AK-47s and some RPGs. and You've got to have a weapon to fight the enemy. You and I can't win the spiritual battle every day in our life without this. This is our weapon. So let me ask you something. And I, I told you, during these few weeks, we're going to be real pointed. How much of this is a part of your life and mine every day? And, and I'm not talking about how long do you sit down and have devotions with it. I mean, I know people that have devotions for 30 minutes. And that's the last time they ever think about the Bible all day long. That, that's not going to help you a whole lot. It will help you for 30 minutes. How much does this book affect my life? Does it affect my decisions? Does it affect the way I react to situations in my life? Does it affect the way I think about other people? Does it affect the way I love or don't love other people? Does it affect the activities that I participate in? Does it give me direction so I know I'm doing the right things in my day? Revival comes when there is a lack of of God's Word in my life. So, here's the first thing I would look at. Bill, do you need revival? The first thing I'm going to look at is, well, what kind of place does the Bible play in my life? If my Bible sits on a shelf all week long and the only time it ever comes off is when I grab it and run out the door to go to church, I, I probably need a little bit of stirring in my heart. Okay? Now, let's see how that happens. All right? Look with me. Um, Let's keep going. There are several verses I, I wish I had time to give you, but I don't. But in John chapter 15, you can write this down and look at it later. In verses 7 through 11, John 15 is where Jesus said, if you're going to be fruitful in life, you have to abide in the vine. And then he told us how to abide. He said, here's how you abide. You abide in me if my words abide in you and you do what they say. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And that's what he says is the only way to be fruitful. It's not just going to church. It's not just being a part of some religious activity. His words have to abide in me. Literally, they have to remain. They have to live in me. And that's what causes me to be fruitful in my life. All right? So when this comes, what happens? Let's look 
at what happened in the revival in Nehemiah chapter 8. And then we're going to stop, okay? So let's keep going. Um, verse number 2, he says, go get the book, bring it. They did. Verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Now notice who was at the assembly that was listening to the Bible, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So would you say that probably included some children? Sure it did. Everybody that could understand was there. Now what did they do? He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, and I'm not going to read you all these names, but there were several men there that were there to help him. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, notice what the people did. The Bible says the people all stood up. Whenever the national anthem is played in a stadium, what does everybody do? They stand up. Why? Out of respect. Not only for that flag, but for the lives of the men and women who died to make that flag able to fly. We, so we stand out of respect. That's why they stood. Out of respect for this book. This, this wasn't just another book. This was God's book. Verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. They must have a little bit of Baptist costal in them somewhere there. You know, They're raising their hands and saying Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice the difference in this emotional response. They were excited that the word of God was open. They praised the Lord. They raised their hands. And then in reverence, because he is God, they bowed their heads in humility to worship him and thank him that as God, he still loved them and paid attention to them. And so that was their humility. But notice they had both. Then verse 7 lists several other people. Levites who would serve in the temple. And again, I'm not going to read all the names. But go through those names until you get to the part that tells us what they did. All of these people instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So what did they do? They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning, why? So that the people could understand what was being read. They actually had teachers there. They would read the book of the law, and then they would explain what was being read. They made it clear so everybody understood it. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. As they began to read and explain, as they began to understand what the Bible was saying, the Bible says that most all these people were crying. Now, can you imagine if Dr. Carney started his sermon and got about 15 minutes in, and all of a sudden everybody in the congregation just starts bawling and weeping? 
That's literally what's happening here. Except this is probably somewhere between 800,000 and a million Jews. There's a lot of people here. And they're all crying. So notice what Nehemiah says in verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy some food and sweet drink. See, they did that all the way back then. And send some to those who don't have anything prepared. Why? Because this day is sacred to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's Word should not bring sorrow. It brings joy. It is the key to joy in our life. Then he goes on to say, verse 11, The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, this is a sacred day, do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. What happens when revival comes? We saw the reason it's needed is because of the dearth or lack of the Word of God in our lives as believers. And, and that's what was going on here. So what took place? How did this happen? Let me give you real quick six things that I just read to you about. Number one, there was the presentation of the Bible. The Bible said they opened the Word of God and read it aloud. It's impossible for you and I to have our hearts stirred towards obedience to the Bible without the Bible. You have to have the Bible. Now, I know that that sounds a little bit um, mundane and, and uh, really, really profound. But the truth is there's a, a lot of religion that tries to bring about spiritual life without the Bible. It can't be done. This book is lit, it's alive. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, the book of Hebrews says. We can't have life without this book. This is where it comes from. Okay? So first of all, there was a presentation of the Bible. Number two, there was personal attention to the Bible. The Bible says that all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It doesn't do any good for me to have the Word of God put into my life if I don't pay any attention to it. And I'm not talking about sleeping through the church service. I'm talking about when I hear it, I see it, I understand it, but I don't pay any attention to it. Have you ever had somebody tell you something to do? I mean, you heard them, you understood them, you know exactly what they wanted, but you didn't pay any attention? Your parents ever tell you that? <laughs> Man, my, being the oldest of six boys... Of course, and we were all perfect little angels growing up. I can still remember my mom telling me, Now, Billy, I want you to take the trash out as soon as you get home from school. And I'd get home from school. I heard her. I knew what she wanted me to do. Matter of fact, when I got home from school and walked in the kitchen and saw that great big full of trash can, I was reminded of what she wanted me to do. You know what I did? I didn't pay a bit of attention to her because I went ahead and did what I wanted to do. Then when she got home, she encouraged me to pay attention with switches off the back porch. And I took the trash out. So paying attention, when the Bible says the people were attentive to the law, it doesn't mean that they were just awake while he read it. They actually were listening with the intent of wanting to learn something and do whatever it was. That's what that means. Third thing, there was a proper respect for the Bible. And we talked about that. They stood up. They showed reverence to it. They bowed their faces to the ground. There is a proper respect for the Word of God. And we all have to have that too. I mean, this can't just be 
another book. Have you ever had a Bible that you kept a long time and you, you underlined and you wrote notes in it and it started falling all apart? And man, going out and trying to get another Bible, at least for me, man, it, it's like burying one of my brothers or something. I, I just can't part with this. I, I got too many notes and, and I, I study it and I, I memorize from it and I can actually, if you ask me, well, where's this verse? I may not know what it is, but in my mind, I can almost remember where on the page it is. So I just flip and I look at that place in the page and I can just about find it because this is my greatest companion. I mean, I'm with it every day. I read it every day. I mark it. I, I, there, there are tear stains in here where I've been on my knees with his book open asking God to show me what am I supposed to do in this situation? I don't, I don't know what to do. That's the kind of respect and value that these people were showing to this book. That's why they said, Ezra, of all the things we could do, we want you to go get the Bible. Go get the book of God and bring it out of here and read it to us. Then, next, there was a practical teaching of the Bible. We read where all these people stood up and they explained it and helped the people to understand it. Do you know that reading this book is not going to do us a whole lot of practical good if we don't understand it? I think I've told you this before, but when I was younger, we used to go to a church that, um, and, and great people, the pastor was a wonderful man, but he used 45 foot long words. And I never knew what they meant. And God really didn't start changing my life. As Ed says, the light didn't really come on until I went to a church where the pastor stood up and he actually explained not only what the Bible meant, but this is how that works in your life. That's when the Bible began to change my life. Because I understood it. I understood how it meant. You know what? We can be theological geniuses. Theology doesn't change anybody. It's the practical application of that theology that changes our life. I know lots of people that pride themselves in being theological geniuses. Unfortunately, that is one area of pride I'll probably never have to struggle with. Because I am not very smart when it comes to all of that. But when it comes to when my life is falling apart, what verses do I know work? I can tell you about those. So the people understood. There was a practical teaching of the Bible. Number five, there was prompt obedience to the Bible. I want you to look at chapter 8 and verse number 13. Something interesting happened. On the second day of the month, the heads of the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe, to give attention to the words of the law. They got, the leaders got together the next day and said, you know, there's some things you read yesterday I think we need to pay a little closer attention to. In other words, we're going back to the Bible with the purpose of trying to understand what it's telling us to do. We noticed there was something there, and I think there's something we need to change, so let's look at it again. Then, going down, the Bible says in verse 15, or verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word, spread it throughout their towns, and in Jerusalem. What, By the way, what month were they in? Well, if you go back to um, the latter part of chapter 7, the first verse of chapter 8, when the seventh month came, and the Israelites settled in their towns, they gathered together, they told Ezra to bring the book. They were right in the beginning of this seventh month. 
And that's why some of these guys said, we need to go back and look a little closer at the Scripture because we think there's something we're supposed to be doing during this month that we have not been doing. So let's keep reading verse 16. or verse. Um, uh, go back up to verse 15. That they should proclaim this word, spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country, bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from the myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booze as it is written. The Bible actually told them what to do. Verse 16. So the people went out, brought back branches, built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and in the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day. By the way, that's a long time. Joshua was the one who led them over the river Jordan into the promised land long before they went into captivity. Until that day, from the days of Joshua until this day, notice what it says, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. In other words, they found something in the Bible that God said they were supposed to be doing that they hadn't done in a long, long time. So you know what they did? They immediately changed. And did what God told them to do. Even though they hadn't done it in a long, long time. And they not only did it, they did it exactly the way God told them to do it. Now what was the result of that? Look at the last phrase of verse 17. And they were all miserable complaining about having to obey the Bible. Is that what it says? It says their joy was great. Why is it sometimes as believers that we gripe and complain and act like we're miserable because we have to live our life the way God tells us to live it? I mean, do do believers really hate being believers that much? Is God cramping my style? I mean, is God trying to make my life miserable? Of course He isn't. The greatest way to live life is in obedience to God's Word, living it the way God tells us to live it. Now, here's, here's the issue. Do we always live life the way God tells us to live it? Of course not. We're humans. All you've got to do is study the history of the Jewish people. They were constantly going through this process, getting all excited, doing what God said. They get settled, and then they blow it. God deals with them like a father, then they go through this all over again. And you know what? God was good with it. God never said, you know what, this is about the 14th time I've had to teach you this. That's it. No more chances. Did he ever do that? And he never does it with us either. And I think sometimes we beat ourselves up because we think, you know what, God's got to be getting pretty frustrated with me. I mean, I keep telling him I'm not going to do this again. And look at me. Here I am. For about the 85th time, I'm doing the same thing. And I'm doing the same thing within the last three weeks. We're human. That's why God's God and we're not. And he loves us more than we love ourselves. And I will tell you this. When you start having children, you'll understand the love of a father. I don't care what my kids do. I'll never stop loving them. I want them, maybe want to wring their neck sometimes, but I'm not going to stop loving them. They're my children. And my love for my children 
doesn't even come close to God's love for us. And then the last thing that happened, this is interesting, there was a passionate commitment to do what God said. In chapter 9 and verse number 38, the Bible says in view of all of this, and by the way, we didn't read it, but if you read chapter 9, it is their prayer acknowledging the grace and forgiveness and the compassion of God. That even though he could have just let them go and cut them off, he never did, not one time. In view of all of this, verse 38 says, we, the Jewish people, are making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests are fixing their seals to it. You know what they said? We're going to make a commitment. What was that commitment? Look at chapter 10 and uh, verse number 28. Here's their commitment. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, there's our group again, all of these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath. To do what? To follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. What was our commitment? That we, with all of our heart, will do everything within our power to obey the Bible. That was it. A lot of times people think that revival is some type of an emotional upheaval that takes place among a group of people. If that's all that it is, and many of you have been parts of those, that doesn't last very long, does it? You know, the revival meeting is over, the tents come down, the nightly services end, the music stops, and everybody goes back to real life, and that emotional high that everybody's on it fades quickly back down into reality. And if that's all it is, then all the fluff disappears and there's no substance left. The substance of revival is the personal commitment to change my life so that it fits in line and obedience to the Bible. That's the substance that's left. Now, a lot of times here's what happens. We go through those times and God stirs our heart and God brings us to a place where we realize that we need to make some changes and we make a bunch of changes and hopefully one or two of them last and make an impact. That's okay. If it's just one little thing that changes, that's worth it. That's why we have to stay connected to God because we're human. We're never going to get to the place where there's not something about my life that needs to change. We're just never going to get there until we get to heaven. Now, when we get to heaven, then we'll be perfect. But until then, we still need this process. So, here's my challenge to you. As you'll see next week, when God's people get charged to start molding their lives and doing everything within their power 
to live a life in line with the principles of the Scripture, you will start to see unsaved people come to God and get saved. Part of what we're doing with Fellowship of Young Christian Professionals is we're starting what we call community groups. And these start with an ambassador who starts a prayer cell in a business that simply prays this with a friend. God, make us salt and light in the business where we work to the people that are around us. You know what salt is? Salt is something that makes you thirsty. Light is the revealing of what will quench that thirst. When God's people so passionately begin to live by the principles of the Word of God to where they love people the way God loves them, to where we treat people the way God treats them, to where we live ethically the way God would live if He were here, when all of that starts to happen, then people around you who don't live that way are going to start to see you. And by the way, if we're miserable, they ain't going to want it. But when we live that way, according to what happened in Nehemiah, their joy was great. And all of a sudden, people around us are going to want to know, why are you so happy? They just cut your pay by 20%. Why are you not mad? Why are you not griping and complaining like everybody else? Why are you not afraid of losing your job like all the rest of us are? How come you don't talk bad about that supervisor who everybody knows is a jerk? Why do you come to work when we're all miserable and you enjoy what you do? What is it about you that makes you that way? Because whatever you got, I need it. That's being salt. When they ask you that question, you can tell them it's Jesus. That's being light. And that's when lost people start getting saved. But you know, if they look at me and, well, Bill's a Christian, but he gossips about everybody. He hates his job. He doesn't work hard. He cuts out on work early. He takes pens and pencils home from work that don't belong to him. And we notice it. Whatever he's got, we already got that because we do the same thing. That's why there's no salt, and there's no lost people getting saved. So, this is like preaching to the choir, because you're the ones that are here. You're the ones that want this. Together, if we pray, God will bring revival to our individual lives, to our ministry here, and to other people around our community. That's what revival is all about. Next week, we'll look at Acts chapter 2. And we'll see what the results were. And we'll talk about some of these things. Okay, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the instrument through which your power is put into our lives. And as the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it through us, then not only do we experience true joy, but other people come to know you like we do. Father, we ask that you'll guide and direct each of our lives this week. Lord, there's no telling what we're going to face, but you already know it. Give us wisdom and strength to follow your word, to do the right thing, and to know the true joy of the Lord. 